0: today. I hope you're okay with that, because um, I know it's December, it's Christmas, so I just feel like, you know, a little bit of holiday season. So, um, I do, we'll pause uh, during this sermon for you to chat a bit amongst the people next to you, so here's your chance. If you don't like the person next to you, you can move now. And... Well, no, we'll, we'll make it work, we'll make it work. Okay, I want to show you four pictures, uh, four images of hope. So, the first one, uh, A, is someone waiting for the weather to change. I was going to say, you know, until yesterday, everyone's you know, usually waiting for good weather when the forecast is bad weather. But actually, yesterday, after the heat, we were all waiting for that storm to come in because we wanted some relief. But whatever the case, that's picture A, an image of hope, someone hoping for a certain weather. Um, What about image B? You've got um, a soldier there, maybe in the trenches of World War I, and and he's looking longingly at a photo of his, of his, of his wife or his fiancee, um, and he hopes to be able to see her again. That's another image of hope. And then, of course, Christmas time, uh, number C, you've got um, a, a child peeking behind the Christmas tree because uh, she's left cookies out for Santa, hoping that Santa comes tonight and that she might get a glimpse of Santa. And then, uh, number D, or uh, picture D, you've got um, a child sleeping in an Elsa dress um, because maybe they're going to Disneyland the next day and they're just going to go to sleep in the princess dress. Okay, so here's your first chance to interact. So just with someone or people around you, um, have a chat. Over. They're, all, they're all images of hope. I want you to have a think about which one do you think captures the Bible's idea of hope the best out of A, B, C or D and why? Why don't you do that with with someone near you? Which one captures biblical hope better and why? (laughs) How do we go? Um, I'm not going to tell you the answer yet, but I'm interested. Um, Who voted A? Okay, a couple of A's. Who voted B? Quite a few B's. Who voted C? And who voted D? Okay, interesting, interesting. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, I have three points. Um, The first one, I'm only going to be looking at one verse uh, today, the verse that we just read out. Um, So have a look at it. Uh, which is verse 13, and it's just there for you. A very interesting verse, isn't it? Especially in light of our Advent series. Look what it says again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll read it again since we're only looking at one verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty dense verse, isn't it? But did you notice that it brings all four of the themes of Advent that we're doing together? Um, Another word for trust is, of course, faith. See what it says there? Somehow hope actually ties all of those things together. Somehow hope ties together faith and peace and joy. So was a pretty cool verse to find this week as I looked it through the Bible about hope. But hope is almost the most important. Now hope is the one that brings out joy and peace. Um, so I want you to go back into your little pairs or groups and whatever and I want you to have a think about, as you look at that verse, maybe how do you see it relate? Those four things, hope, faith, peace and joy through this verse. Is there a way that they relate is there is there even a picture or a a metaphor in a way you think those four things tie together according to this verse how do they relate to each other this is a bit harder so i'll give you a bit more time how does hope faith peace and joy relate according to the verse have a chat to it have a chat about it and we'll come back um i wonder how you went um we were caught in a little bit of a, a, a circle there I was talking to Wooj about it. It seems like um, hope is somehow the origin as well as the end point as well. Did you get that? Because it's the God of hope fill you um, uh, with joy and peace. So somehow God of hope relates to having joy and peace as you believe in God, but then that will cause you to then overflow with hope. So hope is both at the starting point and the end point. Um, so we're a little bit confused about that. I don't know what you guys came up with. Um, uh, I, I won't obviously be able to hear what you all came up with, but one, one way that um, I, I tried to make sense of it this week is a little bit like this, uh, maybe an agricultural metaphor. So if you imagine that hope is the seed, then maybe joy and peace are the fruit, and then faith is the soil, right? Maybe that's why we're seeing it. So, so the hope is a seed that when it comes into full growth, becomes some sort of plant or tree. And the, the fruit of, of hope, um, or having the God of hope, is that it would rejo- uh, sorry, result in joy and peace, all right? Um, and faith relates to that because faith is the soil in which hope grows. So you need a healthy soil because um, we'll look in a moment how important faith is when it comes to hope. Um, and, and if you use that metaphor, for, so hope is the seed, joy and peace are the fruit. Um, and faith is the soil, then maybe the Holy Spirit is the rain, right? Anyway, that's just the way I pictured it. Um, But yeah, the the point is that these four are related, but that hope is somehow, in this verse, especially the bookends, it's both the origin and the result, Um, which means in some sense if you want your life to be full of joy and peace and faith, and faith we looked at last week, then hope becomes so important, right? And if you want our world to be full or fuller of joy and peace and faith, then we need more hope. And so that's the point of what we're doing today. We want to really look at what is biblical hope because if you get hope right, then so much comes out of it and maybe so much flows back into it. So let's kind of clear away some of the cobwebs a little bit more and let's have a look at biblical hope. Um, and it all has to do with promises because the Bible's view of hope isn't the way that we often use the word hope, all right? Uh, I hope to be able to get Taylor Swift tickets when they are released. Um, that can be a little bit of wishful thinking. I mean, you would like to be able to, but not everyone's going to be able to. Right? You're going to have to go in some sort of online lottery or some sort of queue, Um, A lot of times we speak about hope, it's in terms of wishful thinking. I don't know if it's going to happen. I hope it's going to happen. And so I'm going to try, right, or be optimistic so that it might happen. That's not the idea of hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible, and in fact, um, Marshall and um, David already uh, kind of touched on it. Hope in the Bible has to do with promises, Right? Hope in the Bible has to do with promises. But these are promises that have not yet been fulfilled. And that's why there is a future element. But the future element isn't wishful thinking. The future element is, I'm waiting for promises to be fulfilled. And that's why God is the God of hope. Because God is the one who makes promises. All right, So hope is trusting in the one who will fulfill those promises. And that's how faith relates to hope. Remember this verse? Faith is the soil in which hope grows, because in order for me to live as though these promises that are still to be future, still to be fulfilled, for them to come true, I need to trust. I need to have faith, because it's all about promises, right? And that is entirely the Bible storyline, isn't it? The Bible storyline of God's relationship with humanity is built on promises, or the technical word often we find in the Bible is Covenant, or actually, another word for covenant is, of course, testament. So, you know, your Bibles are Old Testament, New Testament. The very structure of the Bible shows it's built on promises. And, of course, it's Christmas, even more so, isn't it? Because what do we believe about Christmas? Is that hope doesn't just come as a promise, or promises don't just come as words, or words don't just come as sounds or written on a page. The amazing thing about Christmas is that all of those things has come as a person, all right? Literally, hope has been personified. God's, we sang about it, Oh, come all ye faithful. God's words, eternal, has become a man, right? God has actually come in person and in flesh. Um, one of the most uh, wonderful, uh, I think, pictures of this or, or novels that have kind of talked about this is unfortunately a book that I don't think a lot of kids read anymore. So if you're a parent... Get your kids into *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. Right? Uh, just, just out of curiosity, how many of you read or watched *Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe*? I'll, I'll even accept the movie version. Okay, that's the majority, which is good because it's it's such an important book. Okay, it's written by C.S. Lewis, a very um, public Christian um, who was active particularly in the 60s. But he also wrote these children's novels that were deeply about his faith, and he's a Christian. Um, so, in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, if you don't know the story, are uh, four. Um, Uh, teenagers or one of them, a couple of them are still in primary school, but four kids um, during World War II, uh, they discover an old wardrobe that when they went through the wardrobe um, took them into a parallel world, a snowy, filled, parallel world of magic and magical creatures and that place is called Narnia. But then as they enter into Narnia, they soon find out that the snow, while lovely, is actually for Narnians terrible because Narnia was anything but a good place when they went through this wardrobe to this parallel world. You see, for a hundred years, the land of Narnia has been gripped by unrelenting snow and ice. And it's because it's been ruled by the evil white queen or the ice witch or whatever you want to call it. Um, And the winter actually has hasn't ended for a hundred years, or one of the lines that comes out is, Um, it's like it's always winter, but never Christmas. We don't understand in Australia because Christmas is in summer, but imagine that you know, if you're living in the northern hemisphere, one of the most wonderful things about Christmas and the snow and white Christmas is Christmas, right? But in Narnia, it's always winter, never Christmas, and that's the situation they're in hundred years of that, and so in this parallel world. Um, it's it's a world that's not just snow and ice. Evil flourishes. Um, good creatures actually have to hide or they're forced to collaborate with the white queen. Um, and if they don't, they're risks being turned into statues made out of stone. Right? Always winter, but never Christmas. And that's what they come into, this terribly hopeless world. But then as they come, they realize that things begin to change. Well, I've have, have begun to change because um, as they walk through the snow and ice, all of a sudden they'll, have a, they'll see a flower, um, which is you know, the traditional kind of herald of spring. It'll just be one flower in the midst of a snow poking through. Um, they'll hear a bird's song, um, and that hasn't happened in Narnia for a while. They'll see evidence of snow beginning to melt, and the seasons maybe beginning to change. And all of this is, of course, evidence that, that, that winter's power was, was fading And that the days would soon be lighter and brighter and something was happening. And and so hope begins to build um, in Narnia, even as they wander around and as they talk to some of the creatures there. And the reason hope begins to build is, of course, in in this story, because of Aslan. It's interesting that the kids talk about the lion, because Aslan is the magical lion, who is not just a lion, but he is the great creator and the ruler of Narnia. And the creatures who were in Nani, who remember, remember that Aslan was coming. Let me read to you a little bit of an excerpt. So one of the uh, magical creatures is a beaver. Yes, they talk. Um, and, uh, and, and, And Mr. Beaver says this. They say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund, uh, and Edmund had secretly betrayed his friends to the White Queen, Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. But Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? That you've got this eternal winter, and then just the mention of the name Aslan, and you get the smell and the taste of summer. And that's a beautiful way of picturing hope. And in the context of this book, it's all because hope had arrived in a person, in Aslan. And of course, Aslan is a symbol of Jesus. And so when we're talking about Christmas and hope, we see how they relate, don't we? Christmas is hope come in a person. Um, Remember last week we introduced the idea of Advent, or, or Ivan did, And the idea of Advent is coming. And there's actually two Advents, isn't there? There's the first Advent, which is, right, Jesus coming 2,000 years ago. And the first Advent, as Ivan spoke about last week, you remember, is built on hundreds and hundreds of years of promises. And these promises were fulfilled when Jesus was born. But the second Advent is Jesus' final coming, His second coming, Um, Or in the mullet and Auntie Karen talk. It's the coming of Jesus that will make all things new. And that's built on promises as well. That God will come back and make all things new when Jesus comes. But you see, for both the first Advent, which we celebrate in Christmas, and the second Advent, which we're looking forward to, it all comes down to one person. The coming of Jesus. And His coming is built on what? On promises. And that's what faith is. Now, that's what hope is all about, and that's where faith comes in. All right? and last week, you remember, we looked at the idea of faith with Ivan. There are good reasons to have faith. There's good reasons to trust these promises, even the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, because historically, what happened? Jesus died. He rose again to show that God's promises always come true. And then if you want to relate it to the passage of the Holy Spirit, this is the other great thing. The Holy Spirit helps us to what? Overflow with hope. Why does the Holy Spirit help us overflow with hope? Is it just that He kind of makes us feel kind of warm and fuzzy? Uh, Did you talk about that in your small groups? I reckon one of the helpful ways to think about the Holy Spirit and why He also helps us overflow with hope is this. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is also an advent? Do you know the Holy Spirit is also an advent? Because when Jesus was about to go to the cross, how did He speak about the coming of the Holy Spirit? He actually said... I will come back to you. When he promised the Holy Spirit, it was in terms of an advent. Jesus wasn't going to leave his disciples after he goes up into heaven. He's actually going to come, advent, come and be with his disciples. That's all of us today, even 2,000 years later. He's going to keep coming to be with us through the person of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is actually Jesus' presence with us. It's a, his, he is a type of advent. So, That's how the Holy Spirit helps us overflow with hope because God actually comes into us, right? Again, He comes so that the hope and the promises that we hear aren't just going to remain outside of us. He makes it personal to us so that we can experience the other advents in a personal and present way. Or if you like to put it this way, we're looking at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all involved, right, in this idea of hope god the father right promises because god is god for us god the son comes and it's god with us and god the holy spirit is god in us right god for us the father god with us the son god in us the holy spirit god the trinity one god in three persons completely involved from beginning to end in that hope Right, so these promises that, are, that He gives us, that gives us hope, that we have trust and faith in, God, all of God is involved in that. So coming back to the images of hope, I wonder which picture you think was the best image. Let me give you my, um, my version, well, my answer, which is the right answer because I came up with it. Uh, it's actually picture D. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because in every other picture, there is no promise. Except maybe the guy in the trench, but he doesn't know if he's going to make it alive. You know what I mean, there's no certainty of a promise happening. I like this one because the child has been told by maybe mom or dad, tomorrow we're going to Disneyland. And the child is so confident they're going to go to Disneyland that they're going to live tonight as if it's already happened. And so the child is going to wear the Elsa dress because they're going to live in the now in light of the promise, which they're confident is going to happen for for the child as the next day. I think that's actually pretty close to biblical hope. Biblical hope is living in the present, right, in such a way that shows that we really believe in the promises to come. Do you see? So much so that like the child, we might even... Do something that outsiders might think is a bit crazy. That we'll actually wear the clothes of the promises, right? Or live the future in the present because we're so sure. That's biblical hope. It's not wishful thinking. Probably the worst picture was A. Sorry if you voted for A. Because we really don't know what the weather's going to do. It's always wishful thinking. We say, oh, I hope it's not going to be too hot this afternoon. I really don't know. It's probably going to be hot, right? I hope it's not. Um, or, 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 or the cookie and, and Santa, of course, that's... that's wishful thinking because Santa doesn't actually, am I allowed to say this? Santa doesn't actually exist. Sorry, <laughs> right, if you bring your kids to carols, I won't give that away. During the week, I had to check with a group of mums. I said to them, um, will, will, will you guys get really mad if I, in the carols talk, somehow implied that Santa wasn't real? And they go, oh yeah, we'd get mad. <laughs> and and our, and, and our and our other mom's kids would get really mad. Okay, I'm like, okay, I'm not touching that one. All right, so kids are all in kids' church, so it's fine if your kids believe in Santa or whatever. But we know, right, because we're adults, uh, are we? We're adults, we know that Santa's not real. So that's definitely wishful thinking. And as I said, um, um, the guy in the trench is a good one too, but the problem is he doesn't know if he's going to make it alive, and plenty of them didn't make it out alive, and, and whether he's going to see his fiancee or not, um, right? So this one, though, Um, This child knows that mom and dad have made a promise and uh, and she's going to live in the present in light of the future. That's what biblical hope is like, right? How do you live as though God's promises are so real because they are and God is so trustworthy that you're going to live them out now? That's living in hope. Okay, now back to your uh, discussions. Um, Why don't you work out one or two ways you think that that might apply to the follower of Jesus or to you, right? If this is true and you're Um, someone who lives in hope, living out the future now, what are a couple of ways that that might apply to you? Have a chat about that. Um, if you haven't had a chance to hear from everyone, and especially if you're like more than a one-on-one, please do keep chatting about it um, after after the service. Uh, but um, I, uh, I'll give you I'll give you three suggestions. But I, I just want to say before we uh, give you three suggestions, by mo- no means the only ones. I, I'm, you know, I was chatting to Buj and He came up some really really good ones, and I'm sure you did too. Um, but the, the point is this: it, uh, our world is a world that uh, as David says, um, we have to live with hope. Even atheists will live with hope. But a lot of the hope that our world lives on is, is basically wishful thinking, isn't it? And so if we're to be, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you want to be a follower of Jesus, and you're going to live um, purposefully, live um, in light of the sure promises of God, and He has told us what these promises are, so we're not in the dark about them, right? not just about um, heaven and the new creation, um, but about the things that really matter, what life is all about, purpose, you know, all that kind of stuff. If we live in light of that um, in this world, then it's going to look really countercultural. That's the point. Like, you're going to look odd. Right? If, if you're going to live um, today in light of tomorrow and, and know that tomorrow is going to happen because of the promises of God, um, you may just be like this girl uh, wearing an Elsa dress to bed. It's going to look odd. It's going to be countercultural. Um, but actually, living in a countercultural way or with countercultural hope. Uh, is really, really important. And so we need to help each other do that. And let me suggest three ways uh, that you might not have thought of and probably um, didn't discuss. Um, and they are baptism and communion, having children in godly singleness. They're like, what? Okay, let me explain. <laughs> baptism and communion. Baptism and communion is like wearing that Elsa dress. What's happening in baptism um, and we're having baptism next week um, at Bankstown. And, uh, and if, if this is going to change your mind about baptism, great. Because what what's happening with baptism is you are marking yourself or or your children as people who will be defined by the promises of God. That's what baptism is. About, right? You're actually putting yourself in a situation well, you're getting dunked or, or marked with water because the water symbolizes God's promise to forgive you, symbolizes God's promise to uh, pour His Spirit out on you. The gospel is encapsulated in the waters of baptism as a symbol. And so when you get baptized, you're saying, I'm going to wear that dress now. Right? So that's why baptism is important. It doesn't save you, but it certainly marks you as someone who says, I'm going to live by this hope. So if you are a follower of Jesus already, you've been baptized is a good reason. But if you have been baptized, something we do at church uh, at least monthly is communion. What is communion? Right, the Lord's Supper. I am regularly feeding myself with God's promises until Jesus returns. That's what communion is. See, both baptism and communion has has a they they point to the promises of God. Right? In communion I regularly feed myself with the promises of God that you know, that Jesus' body was broken for me, that his blood was shed for me so that I can be forgiven. And Jesus says, you do this, right, until he returns. In both of these things, we are marking ourselves. We are participating in very tangible ways, right, in the promises of God. We're actually living out countercultural hope. And they seem like so easy and so simple. You just come to church, take communion. But if you really understood it, I hope you're seeing, I hope that you see that this is how you live out countercultural hope. All right? So that's the first set: baptism and communion. The second one, you may not have thought about this. Um, It used to be that people maybe my age um, uh, used to decide, well, I'm going to get married or I'm going to have a partner, but I'm not going to have children. And it used to be mostly because, I mean, without being too judgy, but it's basically selfishness, okay? And that's assuming that you can have children, you just choose not to, all right? We're not talking about infertility. We're just talking about people who can have children, especially who do get married, and like we are not going to have children. We decide not to. It generally used to be mostly about selfishness because I don't want to change the standard of living. I don't like kids, whatever. However, you talk to young people nowadays, um, and a lot of them don't want to have children. Right? They still want to get married. They still want to have relationships. They don't want to have children. And it's not because of selfishness. What's really interesting, and my friend um, Rory Shiner wrote about this, it's because of hopelessness. More and more, so young people do not want to have children because they don't want to bring children into a world that seems so hopeless. Are you getting that? Did you, you hear that when you're talking to people? Right? It's actually a thing. I don't want to have kids because this world is so miserable and terrible. Why would I even think about bringing someone into this world? And so, if you're a follower of Jesus and God gives you the opportunity to have children, get married. And you choose to have children, you know what you're saying? You're saying, this world isn't hopeless. God hasn't given up on this world, and neither will I. That's why we will have children. I like, you might be thinking, gosh, I'm a young parent now, I kind of wish I didn't. (laughs) But actually, just the act of having children is an act of hope, do you see? When you decide to have children, you're saying, God, you promised that this world and all of its misery is not going to have the last word. And you also, God, want to involve me and my family and my generations and the future in your plan to make the world a better place. And because you make these promises, as horrible and miserable and hopeless as the world seems, I believe you, God, and I'm going to take your word at it. And so I'm going to, if I get the opportunity to, have children. It's that simple right? Just by the act of Christian people saying, we're going to have children. Even though the world is hopeless, you're actually living out hope. Now, if you are already a young parent or you're planning to have kids, right? Of course, it's more than just popping out babies. It's raising them to know the promises of God, because you can influence not just your kids, but generations to come to participate in promises. Having children, there you go. Have a think about that. Third one, and this is probably the most countercultural um one. That actually if you are single, and by the way, when we talk about single, we often just mean never married, but actually more and more so in the church, it's going to be people who are widowed or widowed. It's also going to be people who have been divorced. Okay? For whatever reason, if your stage of life is singleness. Being godly in your singleness is about the most co- countercultural, hope-filled thing you can be doing. Now why is singleness hope-filled? Because a lot of the world puts singleness as pretty much being hopeless. and it's because what does our world believe you need to be fulfilled? You need to have someone, and you need to be having sex. Right? That's pretty much a narrative of our world. If you want to live a fulfilled, authentic life, you've got to be in a relationship, and you've got to be sexually fulfilled. And if you don't aren't in a relationship and/ or are sexually fulfilled, life is pretty much meaningless. That's our world's narrative. That's not the Bible's narrative, is it? See, what does the Bible say about our future? The Bible says our future, if you're a follower of Jesus, is simultaneously marriage and singleness. Do you you know that? Right? In eternity, God's people are not going to be married. Right? Jesus was asked about marriage, and He says, in the new creation we're going to be like the angels we're not going to be married or given in marriage why it's because god's promise is that we will all be married in the most perfect greater sense that the most fulfilling marriage in fact all human marriages the bible says points forward to the marriage of jesus and his people and so the greater marriage, the wedding of the, the lamb, as Revelation puts it, is what we're all looking forward to. That's the promise, right? And so married people now live out that promise by having godly marriages. But here's where Christianity is different from our world. Singleness is also a point to the future, isn't it? Because if you're single and you're godly about your singleness, you're actually living out the future life now because we'll all be single one day. See, both marriage and singleness, whether you're called to marriage or singleness, and all of us will probably be called to both, or we'll have been called to both at one time, and some of us who are married will be called to singleness again, because our spouses will probably die, um, or the 50% chance they'll die before you, right? Either way, whatever you're called to, right, whatever relational status, marriage or singleness, you can live out the future now, but particularly counterculture, and this is my point, is godly singleness. Because again, our world says if you don't have someone, or if you're not sexually fulfilled, life isn't worth living. But if you are a Christian, then living out godly singleness, that is, right, while I am single, however long that is, whether it's now or whether it's for the rest of my earthly life, I'm going to live being satisfied in my relationship with God. And I'm going to live a celibate single life. That is, by the way, inconceivable for single people who who aren't Christians. Why would you be single, right, and celibate? Some people don't mind being single, but they're sexually very active. Whereas God says, no, 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 sex is within marriage. And so if you're single, living out the hope-filled, faithful life is choosing to also be celibate. And to not base your identity on sexual fulfillment, that you can actually be single and fulfilled because you trust in the promises of God, because you live the future life now. And so if you're a single person, as a lot of you are, can I just say this? By being godly and sexually pure in your singleness is a tremendously countercultural way of living. That's a tremendously hope-filled way of living. All right, let's get the band up. That's all we have for today. Good on you for participating in a bit of interactive preaching today. Let me pray, and maybe we'll just give you some time to have a think about how God may be speaking to you today. What area of your life, whether it's one of these three or something else that you talked about, what might it mean for you to live the hope filled life? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as you have spoken to us through your word, that we might not just be hearers, but we might be doers. And we pray that we might be people who understand hope in the way that you speak about hope. And that is, you've made promises. They're going to come true. And sometimes it does seem hard to hang on to them. But we know that this hope through faith is the doorway to joy and peace. And so I pray that this group of people here, wherever they are on their spiritual journey, might take something that you've said today and apply it in a hope filled, countercultural way. In Jesus' name, Amen.